Hello, my name is Mary Tarsha, and I'm here with Dr. Darsha Narvaez. Hi, Darsha. Hello there. And today we are talking about self-protective ethics, the morality that stress promotes. And in this podcast, we're talking about how a protectionist ethic can be triggered in threatening situations. It takes over our perception and our attention and often depletes our resources for higher ordered processes. And we're discussing uh, this information, which comes from chapter seven of Dr. Narvaez's award-winning book, The Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality. Uh, Dr. Narvaez is the founding director of EvolveNest.org and Professor Emerita at the University of Notre Dame Department of Psychology and the Kroc Institute for International Peace Research. So I'm so happy to be with you today, Darsha, to talk about self-protective ethics. And something that you highlight within your chapter is the importance of understanding both downshifting and upshifting. So first of all, what are those? Thank you, Mary, good to be with you. Uh, downshifting refers to when we, uh, are, we activate our more primitive uh, survival systems that we have built in. Uh, they're innate to keep us alive. So these include the emotion systems of rage, fear, uh, panic, the stress response is uh, integrated with them. And that moves us either to fly away, flight, you know, run, or to fight, or freeze if those things don't work, or faint to pretend we're dead, that kind of thing. In, in chronic uh, situations of, um, you know, a tiger chasing us or something, it's very useful to have these self-protection mechanisms so that we do stay alive. The problem is we are raising children to downshift uh, almost automatically because we're not providing evolved nest. Uh, and so the brain systems of the primitive ones kind of take over uh, when, when you're under nurtured, under cared for, uh, you're more stress reactive and those things then get triggered. And then that shifts how you are thinking, perceiving, acting, what you think is a good action, what you think is a good uh, rationale for action and so on, it shifts everything. Upshifting is what good societies do. They upshift you into your heart-centeredness, your orientation to connection to others, to respecting others, to being relationally attuned, to honoring the dignity of the lives around you, whether human or other than human. Uh, so upshifting is what um, we want to have in a society, in community, in a family. Uh, to keep us in that cooperative state. So it's the parts of the brain that are fostered after birth, primarily of being socially attuned and socially responsive and empathic and enhancing the well-being of the other. And then the ability to use our, our imaginations for enhancing the uh, well-being of others. So that's upshifting is to keep us in that mode. And so we want to also um, focus there, but I think today we are focusing on the downshifting aspect, aren't we? Yeah, and you know, as you're talking, they both, and as you describe within your chapter, they both feel very different. 
don't they? So when we're talking about the difference between downshifting and upshifting, um, you have a sense of um, upshifting is that connectedness and you have a sense of compassion for others versus in, in downshifting, it is, as you referred, it's very stressful. And so stress is a, is a big part of why and how we then downshift. And, you know, empathy and compassion is um, part of the formula. And as you say within your chapter, that stress plus personal distress equals little empathy. And so with downshifting then, how does stress play a role? Yeah, so when uh, we are stressed, the blood flow shifts in our bodies away from our brains, our higher order thinking, and into our muscles to mobilize us to run if we need to. Uh, so it's, it's set up in a way, evolved to be uh, an acute uh, state, one that you only use once in a while. Uh, but what happens with undercare is it becomes a chronic state uh, because babies are left to cry, left alone, uh, in distress, even though they may not say anything anymore. <laughs> they've learned not to cry because it uses too much energy because they, they've been left alone in their crib for hours, whatever. And so then they, they're more easily put into that um, stress reactivity as they grow up, when they're adults. And the uh, flow, the blood flow is shifting them to self-centeredness, uh, the self-protectionness, right? It's not relationally attuned typically uh, for mothers perhaps when they start to you know, put their, uh, protect their own children. There's a maternal kind of uh, aggression and protectionism. Not really talking about that. We're talking about how it shifts in the individual to make them less sensitive overall. Uh, you, what you perceive shifts when you're in a state of distress or stress. So if I see a shadow coming across the room, um, I, if I'm threat reactive, if my stress system gets triggered very easily because of all that early undercare and misdeveloped systems, uh, when I see the shadow, uh, even if I know afterwards it was just a shadow and not a bear after me or some threatening um, creature, uh, it takes me a long time to settle down because I've been so tuned up to be stress reactive. And so um, I've downshifted into this mode of, of self-protection. Uh, whereas a well-constructed brain and body would notice, oh yeah, that was just a shadow and immediately be able to calm themselves down. Yeah, so when you're talking about this, something that is important in downshifting, as you refer to, is that that shifting, right? So this is something that is situational and changes, it's dynamic. But, and, and I'd be interested if you can say a little bit more about that, but then there's also times where it could be chronic, right? Where this is, uh, we're in a consistent state of downshiftedness. <laughs> and because of that, we might not even be aware that we're in uh, downshifting. So could you say a little bit about that shift and the change and how it is situational? Yeah, so right. we're not always in one or the other, right? So we're always in every situation, uh, subliminally, subconsciously, quickly, uh, determining whether we feel safe or unsafe. Uh, neuroception is what Stephen Porges calls it. 
And uh, so that then sets our biology, our neurobiology up to act in ways that are self-protective or open-hearted, right? And we're either bracing because we feel unsafe and that bracingness can downshift us into these self-protective mechanisms or we uh, feel safe and so we're uh, relaxed and attuned and open. Now we have to have experiences about how to get along with others in order to feel safe most of the time. And in our evolved nest context, that's what happens. Our, our species evolved to be highly social 24 seven, uh, to be really enjoying one another and knowing how to get along for 99% of the time. Uh, there are all, all those things that have to be rebalanced and fixed and just resynchronized. But uh, we are, our species is, is expecting um, to have a very nurturing postnatal life to build all those capacities to get along so that we're upshifting all the time <laughs> uh, with one another instead of feeling threatened by people when someone shows up <clears throat> and we're not used to it and we downshift. Yes, and um, there are different types of self-protectionism, right, that you talk about, um, considering like vicious imagination or superiority. Can you say a little bit about the differences between them? So face-to-face -face is the kind of um, neuroception orientation. In this moment, do I feel safe or unsafe? And uh, I will go into a protective mode of uh, either I'm going to dominate you or I'm gonna just withdraw and let you dominate me because I don't feel like I can overpower you. So it's a power oriented um, aspect of neuroception when I feel unsafe and it's a power over <laughs> or being a power under really one up, one down. So that's the face-to-face -face aspect of it. And that is gonna be rehearsed, unfortunately in early life, if it becomes then dispositional uh, later, that'll be kind of your orientation. You want to then come into social situations with a script. If you've been so stressed all the time, a script of how to behave is the way you're going to feel safe, right? And so then if someone violates your script, you're going to get mad and that'll trigger you into that um, trying to beat them down or you withdraw. Now, there's a way to use the, this, this kind of orientation of self-protection, if, if it's become habitual, to use it also as a, uh, with your imagination, with your planning, with your ability to think ahead, and then it can become vicious. So when we uh, plan to hurt someone, take revenge, uh, that's also a self-protection orientation based in that downshifted set of capacities of enhanced uh, survival systems, essentially. And in some situations, we can end up with um, having that as a, a habitual mode. And we don't know that it's unusual. If you live in a culture that's always triggering you, that traumatizes you to begin with and keeps traumatizing you over and over and no, no healing is part of the culture, uh, then you think it's normal to be aggressive, to be self-protective, to carry a gun, to do things that uh, indicate that you shouldn't be messed with and, and that you are strong and even though you feel scared to death, really, if you think, you know, uh, truly about what you're feeling. So 
Did I answer your question? <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, and yeah, it's a, a wonderful explanation. And I think, you know, as you were talking about neuroception, as you're talking about how we are distinguishing safety or mistrust all the time, I think, you know, you summarize it really well in the chapter when you talk about fear and the effect of fear, what that has on a person. And you say fears lock a person into the present moment with anticipatory fear. And so that it, changed, it changes their perceptions by filtering everything, what they see, what they experience in that moment. So fear-driven individuals do not perceive what is there, but filter things with their inner eyes. And then you par paraphrase Ralph Ellison, who says, when they approach, they see only the surroundings themselves or figments of their imagination indeed everything and anything except the person who is there and you go on to say that fear and the safety ethic uh, limits our creativity uh limits our open-mindedness and our ability to think outside the box and even help and it prohibits us from being responsive and helping to others and one of the things uh, also about the protectionist ethic that's particularly relevant today is that the anger that survival system can easily uh, feel rewarding. Uh, that aggression against someone else, another group, um, speaking up, uh, you know, tweeting a, an insult feels good. And that so that downshifting can feel rewarding, can feel like it's the right thing to do. So that's the danger of enhancing those survival systems in early life. It's that you're you're creating vice as a reward to feel viciousness uh, becomes part of your way of dealing with the world uh, because you haven't learned all the other nuances of all the little things about getting along with others face-to-face -face in an egalitarian way. You don't know how to do that because you didn't practice it very much in early life when it was a sensitive time to learn all that. And so with uh, you grow into using aggression and it feels right and good to do that. So criminals will often you know, talk about taking uh, steps, a violent criminal will, will take revenge on someone and they'll say, well, it was a matter of justice, you know, uh, they had to rebalance things. And so you get in this mode of, of kind of a downshifted cultural orientation that viciousness is good and aggression is good. And, you know, it's all about justice. It's about domination. Who's gonna be on top? Well, it's better to be on top. That's the moral place to be, right? And uh, you know everyone else should be below me in my group. Um, superiority is is one of those uh, uh, attitudes that's dangerous for the well-being of everyone, <laughs> including the superior person who thinks, or the group who thinks it's uh, superior. So over overall, it's a very uh, downshifting is destructive across the board. It's rooted in a uh, uh, degraded self. It's uh, destructive of relationships, of egalitarian enha uh, life enhancing relationships. And it's destructive of the planet as we're doing now because it's all about domination and control and almost cannibalizing everyone else for your own neediness. Because at, at base, it's a neediness of the missing pieces from those early life experiences. And so as you're talking about the importance of early life care, but then also the importance of narratives and those that 
we believe both about ourselves and about the world, how the world should be, how the world is, all of those are um, important and play a role in the type of uh, disposition that we come with, which is shaped by our early experience. And so um, this is pointing to the larger responsibility we all have to pay attention to those larger narratives and to help all of us around us, those especially within our immediate contact to upshift rather than downshift and to help uh, co-construct um, healthy narratives um, and help others, but also like you're saying, helping especially the most vulnerable, the young and the type of care they receive. That's right. So our stories, our cultural stories matter. Right now, cultures, uh, Narratives have trumped our biological needs. We've uh, been told that mothering doesn't really matter and children are resilient. Doesn't matter too much what you do to them because it's all genetic and all this false, a lot of false narratives are happening uh, that then keep this culture of domination and self-protectionism and um, destructiveness keep, keeps it going. Yes, exactly. Right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Darsha, for helping us understand self-protective ethics and downshifting. And this really motivates all of us to help one another upshift um, throughout the day. Thank you so much.